0: Welcome to all of you watching or listening to this iPod broadcast. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Normally I share once a week at least. There's been a bit of time that has gone beyond that this time because I had something unforeseen happen to me and I do wanna share it because it is a testimony. And I believe it will apply to some of the things that I am sharing in this message. This last Thursday, which is, the day is now the um, Sunday, but this is two Thursdays ago. <coughs> I started to feel unusual when I got out of the car first. I noticed my hands were a bit clammy and that I felt, felt light-headed. Now, I normally don't feel like that. And then I thought, well, maybe I haven't had any meat for about a month or so, I'll take two salmon cakes. So I had a good meal. But then when I went to bed later on, I don't know, I might have been in bed for about one or two hours, I was suddenly hit with violent, sharp, stabbing pains in my stomach, and my intestines, that radiated also into my sexual organs. With nausea, with a terrible feeling. Like I was going to die. I couldn't, the, the suffering was too great. I, I couldn't stay still. I was tossing and turning and folding over and because the pain was so great, these jabbing pains. And I cried unto God to have mercy on me. And the pain continued, but I cried unto God. But I decided I would just force myself to be still, even though I wanted to toss and turn because of the pain. And as I did, things began to stabilize. I still needed to vomit, but nothing came up, not the slightest thing, even though I'd only eaten not too long ago. I did a full heave of vomiting with not a single thing that came up. As things began to stabilize, I noticed there was pain on my right side. And I looked up various symptoms on the internet. I was convinced it was the norovirus because I didn't have taste. I had a semi-fever, not a strong fever and no energy or desire to do things, and still wanting to vomit from time to time, but nothing coming up. Well, what bothered me is that as this went on, for a few days, all the food I was eating was not coming out. It's, it's amazing that the day after this terrible experience, I went to the place where which is called Fitness World here, and I tried to do a workout, but I was way weaker, and it was very difficult to do that weightlifting workout. Well, when I went to the hospital, they thought I had appendicitis, and so they did a CT scan, and when the results came in, the two surgeons talked to me. One was mystified. He says, there's a strange series of events that has taken place here that's Resulted in something that I need to talk to the other surgeon about. But he said, your appendix is fine. It's just extended. Then when the chief surgeon talked to me, they'd been discussing things. He said to me, he says, I don't know what you're taking, but whatever you're taking, keep taking it. Because your body did something amazing. He said it took all the poisons when your appendix burst and congealed them into a ball and made it into a hard mass. I said to them, well, if I can evade an operation, that would be great. And so they have decided to wait for about two weeks and do another CT scan and see what happens to this hard mass. And so I've been here and I am feeling better. There's been some time where there wasn't that much proper uh, stool coming out, but it has improved somewhat today. There was a time there where I was thinking, it's kind of strange, I'm eating a lot still, nothing's coming out. Is this another miracle? Like, where's the food going to? I don't feel bloated and I'm eating. But now the food's started to come out properly and there's still some tendency for the stool to be somewhat liquid. But why am I sharing this? Well, it's a testimony of the healing, the mercy of God in my own life. One thing in my life that I recognize is that I've always been very disciplined and I love to... Be disciplined in order to feel good. I live a life that is pure before God. I am, I'm not into any unclean thoughts or habits. I walk a very pure life with God. I'm in love with the Lord. I spend a lot of time in prayer with him each day, at least three hours, usually unless unusual events transpire. So why would God allow something to happen to his child or his son that was such a terrible experience that I should have died and I felt like I was dying. I believe one of the things God was chastising me for, and remember that no son is without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. And no chastisement of course, is something that anyone wants to have. It's suffering. We're to arm ourselves with a mind to suffer. And the word of God says that he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, this was a terrible suffering in the flesh. And one thing it did is it made me aware that I shouldn't be so rigid in my discipline and focused on wanting to feel good with my health. I do somewhat of long workouts three days a week with the weightlifting, about two hours or more. Often because of talking to people and other things, it can be two and a half hours, three times a week. The other two times I just do some very effective aerobics within 20 minutes that are superior to a 10-kilometer run. But I believe God was dealing with that area in my life to bring me into a closer relationship of identity with him and a flexibility where I don't get so set on the things of this life, even of feeling good. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to feel good and have good health. So that's one of the reasons why I have not given a message in some time. King David said, it is good for me that I have been chastened that I may learn thy law. And we know that King David went through terrible trials. It is trials that were to glory in because they expose the dross that is hidden within us that we do not know. It's the heat that brings up the dross. The thing is, when the dross comes to the surface, will we become bitter at God and buy into the lie of Satan that says, see, that's who you are. You're the dross. You may as well give up and not follow God. It couldn't be true. And buy into a false belief system to justify our offense against God. And yet God loved us so much that he suffered more than me a mere creature and you a mere creature. And humbled himself more than you a mere creature and me a mere creature on the cross. So that you could know his forgiveness and his love and be in fellowship with God. The attitude is not offense because of the consequences of God's holiness in this world. No, God isn't the author of darkness, but he does allow the consequences of rebellion against him to have their rippling effect. If he condoned or did not allow it, then he would be partaking of corruption and would no longer be God. It is because God is holy that his love as is totally pure in its integrity so that it is as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. That's the holiness of God, the defensive aspect of the being of God's love which is the foundation that allows creativity from God's love that is without corruption and is ultimately expressed in creativity in a love so great that he suffered on the cross and became a perfect atoning sacrifice for you and for me. Now I'm going to be preaching today from the book of Revelation chapter 2. But in the book of Revelation overall, there's a verse that says that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That means that Jesus Christ was slain before the plans of the world were laid. How is that so? Because in the being of God, Elohim, the Almighty's One, the Father in government, transcending time and space, seeing the end from the beginning, the originator, the Father, the Son, the full expression of the Father into time and space, governing in time and space. And the Holy Spirit in omnipresence, omniscience, filling all things, attached to all things, and being able to be in personage and creativity at, in everywhere at the same time. This is the Almighty's one, the one true God. And in his being, There was not only the capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice before the world was created, it was a reality. And the reason it was reality, because God in personage of government beyond time and space sees the end from the beginning. And also he, in his being, is expressed into time and space. His love, love has the quality of being expressive, of being created. And so God was always expressing the reality of this love that is so pure that it can transcend the holiness of God that requires judgment with mercy by him absorbing judgment upon himself. It isn't in an animal to represent man, and they knew it from the time of Adam and Eve. Yes, they were given an animal as an offering, and it was a symbol of God's forgiveness. And it did cleanse the physical body from sin. It could represent that, but it could not represent the soul and the spirit of man. Thus, they experienced the presence of God in communion with their soul and spirit before Christ died on the cross and in dwelling their soul and spirit after. Now, I'm not into getting into all of this right now in depth. What I am sharing with you that's really awesome, is that in the being of God, there was always a reality of his love being so great that he was a perfect atoning sacrifice. And Christ said, whoever has been taught and learned of the Father comes to me. Because when you see in the Father the holiness of God, you cannot help but recognize in the Father also the greatness of his mercy, even if you don't fully understand it intellectually it is subconsciously inlaid in our being that God must be innately good. Conscience always points towards what is good and there is innate knowing within the being of man that is not necessarily grasped in the intellect that the true God must be able to assure destiny and forgiveness. For if God could not create with purpose because he could not assure destiny and forgiveness, It would imply that he is less than perfect. But God is a quality of being that is the ultimate in trustworthiness. There cannot be anything more trustworthy. He is the ultimate in trustworthiness and it is this quality of love that is so totally pure in holiness. It will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary. Only that quality can contain unlimited power and life without corruption, without being corrupted by it, and is indicative that he is the very source of life. Life is held in this quality of love, which on the negative side, for illustration's sake, is the holiness of God, out of which springs the positive symbol, the symbol of the cross, which is the mercy of God, the grace of God. It was part of his being from before the worlds were created. And it was fully manifested in the full expression of himself in the time and space in Jesus Christ on the cross. It should cause one's heart to just be an utter awe of who God is so that we are on our faces before him with a broken and a contrite heart and with true tears from our heart, with thankfulness that he has forgiven us and that we can have a relationship of love with him rather than being offended at the consequences of his holiness. For ultimately he is the creator and his ultimate intent is is the highest good. Well, that's kind of a big introduction. But I want to get into the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And before I go into speaking on the church of Ephesus first, I want to bring out an overview of this chapter and what the Holy Spirit has been revealing to me about it. God has been revealing to me, I believe, I wouldn't be dogmatic, but I believe it's God that's been causing me to to understand these things. Like, for example, in Revelations chapter 1, it talks about from the seven spirits which are before his throne. We also see the seven spirits mentioned to the church, churches, churches, And for example, I'm going to go to uh, Revelations chapter 4 where it describes the seven spirits of God. Revelations chapter 4. And out of the throne, this is verse (laughs) 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. These are the seven perfections of the one true spirit of God, just like the rainbow makes up the full spectrum of light with seven aspects of light, ranging from purple to all the other colors, purple being indicative of the fear of God. And so I want to mention to you what I believe these seven aspects of the perfection of the Spirit of God are. First, they are the spirit of the fear of the Lord. How is that, a perfection of the Spirit of God, you ask? Well, I'm writing a book on the fear of God, and there's an awful lot I can go into. But I will mention that in Isaiah 33, we read this maybe i don't even need to turn to it really but since i'm already flipping the pages may as well isaiah 33 i think it's around verse um, five verse six particularly it says this and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation the fear of the lord is his treasure the fear of the Lord is his treasure. The verse before that makes it clear that this is talking about the Messiah when it says the Lord is exalted for he dwelleth on high. The, the Lord Jesus Christ treasures the fear of God. In fact, it says in Isaiah eleven two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel of might, and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God. So I want to give you an understanding of what the perfection of God's spirit and the fear of God is. The reason the Lord treasures the fear of God is because it is the secret of communion and abiding within the triunity of the one true God. And this is how it is. There's two aspects always to abiding, this negative and positive I mentioned, on the holiness representing the negative, which is kind of like a symbol for foundation and also of cutting off all that is contrary to the perfection of God's love. Out of which springs the symbol of the cross or the positive symbol in electricity. And it is out of those two that there is the flow of electricity, as you know. And we know that what causes electricity to happen is that there's in The atoms, there's around the nucleus of the atoms, the electrons that are spinning at high speeds and forming a hard shell. But what breaks that hard shell is when those electrons are exposed to a negative and a positive. The hardness is broken and there's a flow of life. And this represents our heart in hardness. The only thing that can break the deception of pride and hardness in one's heart is the fear of God. Now in God himself, it is not different. It is different, obviously. He is not conscious of sin like we are and of our unworthiness before God and of how we are nothing apart from God. When Jesus Christ beholds the Father in fellowship, He sees in the Father the brightness of his glory and love. And he becomes so amazed at the beauty of this, for as King David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple all the days of my life. Now beauty comes out of wholeness and wholeness comes out of holiness because holiness is that quality of being that will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love. It is a blazing fire of judgment of such pure love that it will not tolerate it. And out of the holiness there is seen this wholeness, there is perceived this wholeness, there is experienced this wholeness. And out of that wholeness is seen the beauty of God. And so Jesus, the Messiah, is reciprocating the being of the Father in love. And as he does, we have a picture, for example, of him saying, Father, I love you so much that I want to express my love and thankfulness to you. By choosing to condescend to creation, And suffer great humiliation in order to be enlarged in expressing my love to you so that you can inherit a corporate bride. I want to just, I, I taste your love and it's so good that it just makes me want more. I'm totally satisfied, but I want to enlarge. It's not a matter of thirst. It's not a matter of emptiness it's a matter of being satisfied with taste but taste wanting to be enlarged love wanting to be enlarged and ever enlarging but it is out of this choice to recognize the being of God for who the being of God truly is and that is what the fear of God is and in that there are two aspects there's the negative there is the appreciation for that being of God that will not tolerate what is corrupt and destructive, which is the second law of thermodynamics, for example, as science observes throughout the universe, which basically says that anything left on its own will always fall apart in the direction of greater and greater disorder to total destruction. And when we choose to be independent from God out of offense, we are left on our own, we are cut off from his presence. And then the principle of corruption, of deception, of false beliefs, enters our being. And there's no longer. The flow of life from the very life source of the universe, our precious creator, which is the very source of the ultimate perfection of love. And so I've only got onto the first of the aspect of, of the perfection of the seven perfections of the spirit of God. And that is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. I believe all of these different aspects of perfection are applied to the different churches that are in chapter two, according to what their strengths and their weaknesses are. In fact, we read in chapter 5, this, about the seven perfections of the Spirit of God. Chapter 5. And I'll just tune into the verse here, and it's verse 6. It says this, And I beheld in lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. The Lord's eyes are going to and fro throughout the earth, searching for those whose heart is perfect towards him. In these seven aspects of perfection, which are in the spirit of God. And he is also with the eyes of his spirit as horns of authority to bring judgment and also with grace. in the eyes going forth in all the earth in these seven aspects of the spirit of God I can see I may not even get into dealing with the church of Ephesus here we'll see with time how much time I have The next one, and I may not have these in the right order necessarily, but I do believe they're in the order I see that they should be in, because I do believe purple represents the fear of God and the perfection of God's spirit. The next one is the spirit of holiness, which I've already described what it is. So I needn't go into that. But it is the spirit of holiness that we as believers, need to embrace. And Jesus embraces the spirit of holiness. Yes, it is true that when Christ was on the cross, he cried out and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was that because he lacked faith? No. It was a why with faith. It's not wrong to question why God's putting you through a trial. It's wrong to take offense and to become bitter and not have faith that God as a faithful artificer is doing something in your life if you've truly given your life to him. The spirit of holiness on the cross was in this way manifested. Christ never lost union with the Father on the cross. Sorry, you're wrong. Yes, he experienced the forsaking of God, but his spirit never was broken in the link of faith. The spirit of faith is one of these perfections of the spirit of God. He was In his soul and spirit, like an open hand, trusting the Father. In fact, he said, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. He did not become bitter or angry at God. It was hard to comprehend something like that. Like it was when I was suffering and almost died recently. But he continued to say, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. And so, his spirit of faith was in a state of selfless trust, where there was no corruption, it was a state of holiness, because anything less would be a lack of purity it would it would allow for corruption, and so we read in romans one four that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness. It was because his spirit was in a state of total purity before the Father, in union by faith in the Father, that the Father's life flowed into him, conquering death and raising him from the dead. And there's the spirit of grace, which I believe Applies to the Laodicean church, and I'm not going into that right now, of course. The spirit of grace is another way of describing mercy. Mercy comes out of the holiness of God. I mentioned that from the holiness of God, which is the foundation represented in the negative symbol, springs forth the cross, the the greatest positive you could possibly know, that you can have destiny, that you can have purpose, that you can have forgiveness, because God loved you so much. He suffered more than you have ever suffered in your life. And he's the creator. And how is it that people can hold grudges against others? And hold offense against others? Christ said that if you do not forgive men their trespasses, I also will not forgive you. There have been many, and you can watch on my website at loverealized.com or ultimatemeaning.com, people that have died and saw hell, and they saw believers there, including pastors, that were in hell because they refused to forgive people. If you really are in a reciprocative relationship where you recognize the greatness of God's love and mercy towards you, how can you not want to forgive those that have hurt you and have offended you. To do anything less is to jeopardize your salvation. Holding offense against people and justifying it through saying all kinds of things The answer is to be like Christ. What did Christ do? He went to the very ones that crucified him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he expects us to go like that woman went to his feet and broke the alabaster box. And to go when a person has offense against us, even though they offended us more, And to admit our faults to them in order to seek to reconcile them and to tell them that you choose to forgive them and you choose to love them and you want fellowship with them. I've seen so much of this where people say they have forgiven people but the evidence isn't there because they don't have fellowship with them. They don't even talk to them. If we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But if we're holding offense, and we cannot conquer that offense out of the grace of God in our lives, then we're putting ourselves in a situation of great eternal loss. The main reason that churches have so much Divorce in them is because of the hardness that is in their hearts, because of loves of the world that have hardened their heart. There is an adultery towards the loves of this life that creates a hardness that causes divorce. And wives are not willing to go to their husbands and humble themselves and say, I love you even though you've hurt me so terribly. I still love you and I want to seek to win you. I will never forget the woman that told me how she was getting ready to divorce her husband and God challenged her to take a towel from the washroom and wipe his feet and tell him that she loved him. And she resisted for some time, but she finally decided to do it but do it. And her husband said, No, no, don't do it. And he broke down in tears, and she broke down in tears, and they were reconciled, and their marriage has been good ever since. God's wanting to bring that back into the body of Christ, and it will come when we turn back to the genuine fear of God, that births, a recognition of the greatness of God's holiness and out of that of the greatness of his mercy to us that we would show mercy to others, that we would show grace to others. We are in the last days and there's not much time left, but God is moving fast to shake all things that are shakeable, and the judgment is beginning in the house of God that he may bring forth a bride that is pure and spotless without blemish. And without wrinkle. It means that we let go of the control. We repent of being denominational and not receiving others as Christ received us. Christ called us to receive one another as he received us. Oh, we'll receive the people in our denomination, but we'll keep a little bit of distance from others. We won't show a deep love towards that. Or the leadership refuses to let the members of the body function in their gifts and to encourage them. They wanna control the whole meeting. They haven't repented of control. Every genuine revival, there was no control. The spirit moves through the body as he will. And Christ is allowed to come down his head over the body. It doesn't mean the pastor doesn't preach. No, all of those gifts function, but they function with the body alive, confirming everything that the pastor is preaching. God's calling us to love one another as Christ loved us, and to show the mercy that he's shown to us. I'm going to just mention... These seven perfections of the Spirit of God, and then we can get into that as time goes on and other messages. If this goes on for too long, I must take a look at the time here as I've totally lost track of the time. Okay, i got lots of time yet. Usually my messages are between an hour and an hour and a half. It's 35 minutes. The Spirit... Of grace, related to the Laodicean church. The spirit of love, related to the church of Philadelphia. The spirit of faith, related to the church of Smyrna. The spirit of oneness, related to the church of, pardon me, of Ephesus. I'm still suffering a bit from this poison that's in my body that it's taken a lot of energy out of me. It's trying to eat it up and get rid of it. The spirit of wisdom, rulership, and authority. It's basically the spirit of wisdom, but the spirit of wisdom contains rulership and authority. And that applies to the church of Thyatira. I think the best way to go through and explain these different perfections of the spirit of God Probably just as I begin to share on the churches to um, apply that. So I'm going to read firstly about the church of Ephesus. That's the first church. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works. And thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them, which are evil, and thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches: To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. God emphasizes different aspects in relation of, him, of himself in relation to these churches and their spiritual condition. Now, Ephesus, the word means full-purposed. And they certainly were full-purposed. You only have to read the book of Ephesians to recognize that it is a tremendous book that reveals the ultimate consummate purpose of God in a corporate bride. This is the reason for all things that are unfolding from the very beginning of the creation of the world till now. It is that there should come forth a corporate bride. That's God's purpose. In fact, everything in creation is a male and a female counterpart. It is a reflection of God and his purpose and his love. And Ephesus, they... Are addressed by emphasizing that he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And I believe what God is saying there to Ephesus is that I'm walking in the midst of the churches and I'm walking in your midst and you don't even recognize me. You're so filled with your religious activity and getting things just right. And doing all these things to please me. They are merely performance. But are not coming out of relationship with me. You've lost your oneness with me. You're not even aware that I'm walking in your midst. You're filled with activity. Many churches today. They start the church service with the typical psalm. And I've been in so many, they sing the same songs over and over again. And it's the same pattern. Everyone's jumping in joy first. And there's all these joy, joy songs, and then maybe some more reverent songs and so on. There's no set pattern with God. It's a matter of us being sensitive to the moving and the leading of the Spirit, and especially the leadership. And many of these, what they need to do, really, they're always complaining or concerned that there's hardly any people coming to the prayer meeting. And I don't think the answer is to try to get people out to the little prayer meeting. The answer is to make your church service a prayer meeting, where you learn to have reverence and awe before who God is, where you learn to enter into that deep abiding that comes out of Choosing to recognize God for who he is, not merely from the intellect, but from the deep turning of the heart. That means that we are in utter awe of who God is. We become sensitive to who who we are before. If you think heaven's going to come down when we're insensitive to who we are before, you're wrong. It's also an sensitivity to many other people when you've got people jumping around with joy, joy, joy bell kind of singing. And there's people there that are coming that are so filled with trials and suffering that they can hardly bear it. And we should be sensitive to them too. So we start in humility before God. We make his house a house of prayer where we learn to circumcise our heart to turn from the depths of our heart before him. And out of that deep turning or rending of the heart, the veil is undone. And we begin to see with the eye of our heart the awesomeness of who God is, the glory of who God is. And the more we see that, the more we can't hold our mouth. We get to a point where we just want to praise him and it comes forth out of a pure heart then in a beautiful song that can edify others or or a tongue or a prophetic word. We get caught up with the awe of who God is and out of great humility and reverence, we come forth in jubilation and liberty that is isn't insensitive and mere emotional hype. The church of Ephesus, the promise to them that would, that would overcome was to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So here again, the midst of the paradise of God is emphasized. They could be, as an overcomer, they overcome and learn to be sensitive to God so that they do not just have a bunch of works an activity without relationship with God. If they learn to overcome and have the sensitivity, they will know the very life source of God and be in the very midst of it. There's nothing more fulfilling than, than the tree of life. Being able to partake of it, to be in the very midst of where the tree of life is, which is representative of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God, which flows as a river around that tree and out of that tree from the throne of grace. The promise to those that overcome is that they will be in the very midst of the life source of the universe, partaking deeply of those wonderful, tasty fruits of fellowship with God. The church of Ephesus was once a prosperous deep harbor city. They were, that deep water port gave them great prosperity and became a prominent city at that time. But as time went on, there was erosion because they were cutting down all the trees from the hills and it filled up that deep harbor and made it shallow. And the result was that today, it is more than seven miles away. Actually, I just read in this book that there's 20 miles of marsh from where that harbor was once, once was. It was right at the city of Ephesus. So I don't know which book's the truth. One was saying that the harbor is now seven miles away from where Ephesus was. So I guess that's probably the, the truth of it. But this speaks of a lot in relation to the church of Ephesus, which is related to the spirit of oneness with God. And I want to emphasize that. Yes, they lost their first love. That's part of it. But it's this oneness. Now, that erosion represents something. They failed. God gave them the blessing of those trees. And they failed to be thankful for what God had given them. This is the the picture here. This is the illustration in those trees being all cut down. They represent them Partaking of God's blessings. Things have come to maturity in many believers' lives where they partake of the blessings, maybe with wonderful children or whatever it is, or a tremendous ministry or whatever it might be. But what the failure is that once the tree is cut down, there is no breaking up of the hardness of the ground to plant another tree. So as a result, eventually there is erosion and there is a shallowness In the people of God, they are trivial and lighthearted. They don't have depth. They can't empathize with those that are suffering. They're satiated with the things of this world. The result is they are insensitive to the spirit of God, even being in their midst, towards God walking in their midst because their hearts are shallow. They have... Replaced relationship with God with religious activity, they're very zealous of being right on doctrinally and of exposing every false apostle and false prophet and hating the Nicolaitans and all of that is good. But many of us as individuals in our lives, we can get into that type of a situation where our lives are filled with activity, but we hardly spend time learning to be intimate before God, learning to be in oneness with God, Oneness with God involves hunger. It involves thirst. The secret to overcoming all things is being in oneness with God. As it says in Revelations 21, I'll read this to you, uh, in regard to the secret of overcoming all things. It says this, Revelations chapter 21. says, verse 6, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. The condition is that the person must be a thirst. And then after that, he says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What quenches our thirst for relationship, for oneness with God, for fellowship with God, is the cares of this life. It can be even religious activity, doing all kinds of good works for God, but not seeking God in our heart. Not seeking to have time alone with Him where we enter into a vital relationship with Him. The secret to overcoming is to not allow thirst to be quenched by the cares of this life. That motivates us to seek God. And seeking God brings us into a place of oneness where there's breakthrough, where we experience a deep abiding fellowship with God. And it is this deep abiding fellowship where we feel joined with God, where we feel spiritually bonded with God, that we are his sons and his daughters that gives us the power to overcome all things. The next verse indicates the things that can creep into people's lives when they do not have this thirst that moves them to seek God. The fearful, fear is the first thing that will rob us of this thirst. Unbelieving, unbelief, abominable. People that do terrible habits, sexual perversion murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And that doesn't mean that their part is just a partial time. Because it does also say in the word of God in chapter 20 that, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God is saying through the church of Ephesus to have that perfection of oneness with God, of deep fellowship with God, to feed the thirst by dividing yourself from the world and not seeking to be like the world or seeking to find your fulfillment in the temporal things of this world does that mean that we cannot enjoy the things that God's created of course not but too many nowadays are caught up with the gods of amusement sports is a big idol in many people's lives they spend hours watching it they don't spend time seeking God and yet they come to church and they think God's accepting them and don't recognize the hardness that is formed in their own hearts The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness. And if it isn't idleness to be spending hours and hours on amusements that have no purpose, what is it? The word of God commands us to redeem the time because the days are evil. And we are living in an urgent hour when judgment is soon coming upon the face of all the earth. I will leave that for the book of, for the Church of Ephesus, which is an emphasis on the oneness, the spirit of oneness, the perfection of the spirit of oneness. Smyrna is the next church. Maybe we can do that. I'm just going to look at the time. Yeah. Smyrna. Smyrna. And verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Smyrna means myrrh or perfumed oil. Now the secret to overcoming is to not fear suffering and death. To choose to not fear it. I'm going to just read what I summarized on Smyrna before I begin sharing it because all of this is very ad lib that I'm doing. And these notes were taken a while back now. Um, so, the secret to overcoming suffering and death is to choose not to fear what we will suffer by recognizing that we can trust God to give us the strength to come through persecution, torture, torture, and death in faithful union with jesus christ these refuse to bow to the antichrist system in place of the truth and will be in the first resurrection as mentioned in revelations 24 verse 4 to 6 which says and i saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them and i saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of jesus and for the word of god and which had not worshipped the beast neither his image neither received his mark in it upon their foreheads or in their hands and they lived and reigned with christ a thousand years but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished this is the first resurrection Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Smyrna highlights the perfection of God's holy spirit of faith that fearlessly trusts God in the face of death itself. Now, myrrh is an ointment that when it's put with other ointments, augments them. When we experience trials like I did in my life, if we have our faith in God through it, though we don't understand it, I certainly couldn't comprehend it with my natural mind. The suffering was too great. But remember this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed within us. The sufferings of this present time work in us a far more greater, eternal, everlasting weight of glory. The secret to overcoming the fear of death and of suffering is in faith. The word of God says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith involves our soul and our spirit In an abiding relationship, like unto an open hand, trust, abiding relationship, a reciprocative abiding relationship of trust. It works like this. You've got the spirit of the fear of God, which seeks to choose to recognize God and his being for who he truly is, and his holiness and his mercy. Out of which springs the spirit of holiness, the recognition particularly of the purity of God's love and judgment and totally delighting in that and the beauty that comes out of it. Out of which springs the recognition of the greatness of God's mercy and in that the greatness of his love to us personally. That he could suffer so much for us that we could be reconciled to him. And then out of that springs the response of faith. The word of God says in Galatians, that faith works by love. It is the revelation to us personally of God's love, which is in the revelation of his mercy, the spirit of mercy or the spirit of grace, which issues out of recognizing the holiness of God. It is that that brings a reciprocative faith to trust him. What does the word of God say in John? I believe it's chapter four. It says, perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that has torment has not been made perfect in love. That's not exactly the way it says it. I should probably turn to it. I did memorize 1 John at one time, but that's a long time ago. Perfect love casts out fear. I'm not sure if I'm going to find this, but I don't need to. I just want to emphasize the part that says perfect love casts out fear. Fear is basically a consciousness of loss to one's soul and spirit that causes uptightness. It is a consciousness of loss. And what overcomes it, it is perfect love it is comprehending the love of god that our spirit can respond with this faith that trusts in this love that's so perfect that if he already forgave us so much surely how much more will he bring us through whatever there is to fulfill his purpose because of how great his love is for us it is recognizing by faith that God is in control and that our completeness is not in ourselves, it is in God. It is in our union with God, our fellowship with God, that we have our completeness. So now there's no consciousness of loss because we know how. no matter how great the suffering is we face, God can cause it to be enough that we can endure it. He can cause us also to even not feel it if he wants to. And that often did happen to the martyrs that were burned at the stake. One of them put his finger through the candle and he said, how possibly God, am I gonna be burned at the stake when I'm afraid to put my finger through this little candle the night before? And yet when he came because of his faith in the Lord to be burned at the stake, because he believed in the word of God and wanted to read it and so on, these are true records. He went up in flames with great praise while he was being burned, alive. With stakes all around him aflame, he went up in flames. And there was no indication there that he was overcome with fear, rather the opposite. His hands were filled with praise, glorifying God. It reminds me of the angel that appeared to one of the people in the pre-Christ scriptures. And after they give him food to eat, he walks onto the flames and goes up in the flames onto God. It is wonderful that we can be a love offering unto God. I had the experience in 1975 of the only powerful vision I've had in my life. And I'm not going to share it, but one part of the vision, I saw myself being offered up in flames unto God, being burned at the stake. And as I was being offered up, it was such a rapturous experience that I was filled with laughter, for I knew I had consummated my expression of love unto God and was received into the kingdom of his great love. I will never forget that experience. Does that mean I'm gonna be burned at the stake? I don't think so. God knows, it's whatever he has. But here's the thing I wanna emphasize, is that when we have that kind of faith, In God, there is a consciousness of completeness that replaces the consciousness of loss because we find our identity in the very source of love and of life. It is God's love that contains unlimited life and power in this state that is like a negative and positive that generates light and life. And in him is no darkness, but total light. There's no corruption. And God's love allows us to be filled with the boldness of his spirit. Not to trust in our own ability to face these things, but to recognize that our trust is in him to give us the strength to go through all these things. We recognize in ourselves we could never go through these things. But we recognize the greatness of God's love and his mercy. He's just wanting us to trust him. Because through it, we will be conformed to the likeness of his image of love in a far greater measure, resulting in a far greater and glorious resurrection forever and ever with him. So, you know, someone comes up and they want to cut your head off. Which is the worst, dying of cancer and being tortured with that for weeks or months and months or having a quick death like that? Can God give you the strength to face those things fearlessly and say to the one that's doing that, I choose to believe God that you will repent and and I choose to forgive you. Can we be those that can say, well, I guess you're my ticket to heaven and be rejoicing that we're about to meet our God? Knowing that he can bring us through the momentary suffering. He can even take the pain away and he often does and there's many testimonies like that. He knows how much we can bear. Christ went through the crucible of suffering on the cross and still was in total oneness and union with the Father. Because he is God, he is the full expression of God into the time and space realm. In fact, the only God that can be the one true God is a God that has such love and that has a love that can assure destiny and also a God that is able to be in personage beyond time and space seeing the end from the beginning, being the, the originator of all things, and being in personage in the time and space realm as the sun, and filling all space as the Holy Spirit. Only such a creator as that could possibly be God. If God could not be in personage beyond time and space to rule there, he would be less than God. If God could not be in personage within the creation realm, he would be less than God. But he is God. He does fill all things with his Holy Spirit being attached to every particle of existence. God wants us to know a relationship with him where we are complete in him. Where we're not like Adam and Eve trying to fill the void in our life with the things of this world, trying to... Be acceptable before God by putting on these fig leaves no that will never do but coming to the place where we don't run from God but we face who he is in his glory and we admit our sin and humble ourselves and allow him to put on the atoning garments that were done to Adam and Eve Animals were killed representing the atoning work of God so that they could be covered from their shame. So much for the church of Smyrna. God can give us a boldness and a fearlessness. Paul said, death works in us that life might work in you. He said that we were put through so many trials that we despaired of life itself. But the purpose of it was that we wouldn't trust in ourselves but in God that raises the dead. So the secret of the spirit of perfection and faith is trusting God in the face of death itself. In the face of the greatest contradictions like Christ on the cross, we continue to be in a state of selfless trust. Knowing that in the end, (coughs) the creator has a good purpose in mind. Checking the time here. Okay, it's now just over an hour that I've been preaching. So, what I want to emphasize here, because you can't go through all the churches obviously, is again the seven perfections of the Spirit of God the Spirit of the fear of the Lord, the Spirit of holiness the spirit of grace, the spirit of love, and we just talked about the spirit of faith with Smyrna. We talked about the spirit of oneness with Ephesus, and then there's the spirit of wisdom that results in rulership and authority with the church of Thyatira. These are the seven perfections of the spirit of God that go forth into all the earth searching for those whose heart is perfect towards him, and we are in the last days. There's very little time If you're not up on what's happening in the news, you better wake up because the hour is urgent. Just watch Glenn Beck, for example. Some of the documentaries they've come out with. They have very good documentaries. They're all founded in good fact. They don't put things up that they can't back up with fact. Look, it's happening in Russia. The generals, the general that's behind Putin, he would attack the United States right away with atomic cruise missiles, then what? If whole cities on both coasts are gone, then what will you do? Will you still trust in God that he can bring you through and you find yourself being chased and persecuted by the Russians and the Chinese? Will you still put your trust in God to bring you through victoriously for his purpose? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. God bless you for listening to this message pray for me that I'll receive the healing I need for this mass that is accumulated that seems to be shrinking to totally go so that I have more energy and also for financial support and so on so I can do more for the Lord. I'm limited right now by circumstances financially as well, but I do my best to give what I can to serve the body of Christ around the world. God bless you all. Thank you.